0: It's January, 2011, Tampa Bay, Florida. In a small, sunlit apartment, just a stone's throw away from the warm beaches of Anna Maria Island, Ray Wood is dying. At 78 years old, he's suffering from advanced colon cancer and senses that the end is near. Ray spends the long, hot days alone, cut off from the rest of the world with just his thoughts for company. His tired mind is filled with reflections and flashbacks from his life. Occasionally, this daydreaming is interrupted by visits from Ray's younger, distant cousin, Reggie Wood. Ray enjoys telling Reggie thrilling stories from the past. Those times he got arrested, the girls he dated, the jobs he loved and lost, and the lessons he learned. Sometimes, he even treats his cousin to tales of his wild adventures as an officer for the NYPD. But there's one part of his life which Ray has never spoken about out loud. Not even to Reggie. Ray has a dark secret that he's hidden for 46 years. He's just days away from taking it with him to the grave. However... With the inevitability of death creeping closer by the second, Ray knows it's time to tell the truth. He needs to get this crippling weight off his chest before it's too late, even if it means losing the respect of his family and friends. So, making a quick telephone call to Reggie, he asks him to come over immediately. He doesn't say what it's about. That would be too risky to discuss over the phone. Minutes later, Reggie and Ray are sitting opposite each other as the setting sun glares through the living room windows. Staring into the eyes of his cousin, Ray's breathing becomes heavy and his palms start to sweat. He knows that once he reveals his secret, there can be no going back. Finally, he speaks. Ray explains to Reggie that during his time in the NYPD, he did a lot of terrible things Things which he regrets every second of every day. But there's one far worse than all the others. One which haunts his nightmares and plagues his daydreams. One which disrupted the future of America. Ray confesses that he was an accomplice in the assassination of Malcolm X. At these words, silence falls between the two men. The only sound is that of the waves crashing against the sand outside. Reggie wants to laugh. He can hardly believe his ears. But seeing the tears in his cousin's somber, unblinking eyes, his heart starts to race. Reggie is filled with thousands of questions to ask his cousin How was he involved? What part did he play? Why did he do it? And perhaps most importantly, why is he telling him now? But this interrogation will have to wait. Ray Wood has one more favor to ask of his cousin before sharing his shameful story. He makes Reggie swear not to tell anyone about the confession, as long as Ray is still alive. Perhaps the dying man is concerned about the attention, shame, and danger his confession could bring to himself and the family he's recently connected with. Millions of Americans would brand him a killer and want him to rot in jail. And many more may well want to cause him harm. Ray decides it's much safer for him if the secret never leaves these four walls. However, the deathbed confession of Ray Wood has consequences that will stretch much further than Ray and his family. His dying words offer glimmers of hope to two men who were convicted of Malcolm X's murder in 1966, but have spent every day since fighting to prove their innocence. The question is, how far will Ray's confession go? Will it undermine a national police investigation and exonerate two men who have spent the last four decades locked up for murder? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Ray Wood, of the words he spoke as he lay dying. It's about the assassination of one of America's greatest civil rights voices the controversial murder trial of three men, and a captivating conspiracy which, if true, has the power to free two convicted murderers. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 platinum jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to five hundred grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Although Ray Wood believes he's dying when he makes his confession in 2011, miraculously, he pulls through. The weight that's crushed him for 46 years is lifted. But now his guilty secret is out. Though reluctant to revisit painful memories, Ray swallows any remaining pride and, bit by bit, takes Reggie through the whole story. Reggie learns how Ray worked as an undercover detective for the NYPD during the 1960s, at the height of the race riots era. Shamefully, Ray explains that in February 1965, He lured two radicals into committing an act of terror that saw them arrested and locked behind bars. This left America's foremost civil rights leader, Malcolm X, without his key security guards at the very moment he needed them most. The following story is a continuation of Ray Wood, the NYPD, and the FBI's involvement in the crime that shook the world. It's February 21st, 1965. In a small apartment in Topping Avenue, the Bronx, 32-year-old Ray Wood is taking an afternoon nap when his telephone rings. The loud sound cuts through his sleep and wakes him up with a start. Reluctantly, Ray rolls out of bed and picks up the receiver. He hears a click as it connects and a deep male voice crackles through. Without any word by way of greeting or introduction, The anonymous speaker reads Ray a set of instructions. They order him to leave his apartment immediately and go to the black car waiting outside. From there, he'll be escorted to a location in Washington Heights called the Audubon Ballroom. Malcolm X is due to give a speech there at 2 p.m. today. It's Ray's job to report back on everything that's said and anything interesting that might happen. Ominously, he's ordered not to interfere no matter what. This is all Ray is told before the line falls silent. Most people would be alarmed at receiving such a phone call and skeptical about carrying out the demands of a stranger. However, Detective Ray Wood is an undercover agent for the NYPD's Bureau of Special Services, a highly secretive unit. And these types of calls are an almost daily occurrence. So moments later, Ray finds himself in the back seat of a black Buick. Sat beside him are two men he's never met. They remain silent. The car drives through the early afternoon streets of New York. Eventually, they reach the Audubon ballroom and Ray's told to get out. As he steps onto the streets, he's struck by the emptiness around him. Harlem is eerily quiet. There are no uniformed police officers patrolling the area no security guards standing at the hall's entrance. This is strange considering that one of America's most famous civil rights leaders is waiting inside, just feet away. Something doesn't feel right. Ray walks into the Audubon and is immediately hit by a wave of noise. 400 men and women have crowded inside the hall, desperate to catch a glimpse of their esteemed leader. People stand, sit, slouch against walls, filling every inch of the cramped space. But the background chatter falls to a hush the second that Malcolm X steps onto the stage. From his front row seat, Ray Wood stares at the distinguished yet divisive leader. At six foot four, Malcolm X is a powerful figure, tall, slim, and muscular. Dressed smartly in a neat gray suit, with round glasses framing his face, the radical protester has an almost academic quality to him. After holding the audience in his penetrating gaze for a handful of seconds, Malcolm X clears his throat. He greets the men and women with the usual address, assalamu alaikum but doesn't get much further. Everything seems to happen at once. A scuffle breaks out at the back of the hall. People start yelling, jumping out of their seats, Someone hits somebody else. Then, in the confusion, a young man charges towards the stage, his arm outstretched, pointing a shotgun right at Malcolm X. Before anyone reacts, he pulls the trigger and the shot cracks through the ballroom. Malcolm X stumbles to the ground. Next, two other men sprint forward and take aim at Malcolm's injured body blasting his feet and thighs until he stops moving. By now, the audience is in an uncontrollable state of terror. Men are shouting, women are screaming. The crowd rushes towards the doors, blinded by panic and desperate to escape the mayhem. Ray Wood doesn't hesitate to join them. He leaps up from his seat and follows the retreating crowd as they pile out onto the streets of New York barely anyone gives a second glance to the lifeless body of 39-year-old Malcolm X. As his family and friends crouch over him, giving mouth-to-mouth they must know is pointless, hundreds of questions hang in the air. Among them, where was Malcolm X's security on this fateful day? And who were the three armed men who stormed the Audubon? Minutes after the murder of Malcolm X, more gunshots are heard. This time, they echo through the streets outside of the ballroom. 23-year-old Talmadge Hayer, a member of the Nation of Islam, has fallen to the ground and is bleeding profusely on the sidewalk. He's just been hit by Malcolm X's bodyguard, one of the few members of his security present today. Laying next to Hayer is a shotgun a guilty sign of the young man's involvement in the assassination. Talmadge Hare is quickly disarmed and swept up by the crowd that surrounds him before being handed over to the police. Soon he'll be charged with the murder of Malcolm X, but he is not the only man with blood on his hands. Who knows how many other conspirators are involved in this heinous crime? After Talmadge Hayer is arrested, the NYPD swiftly pursues another suspect. As soon as Ray Wood runs from the Audubon, he's grabbed by officers who clamp him in handcuffs and force him into an awaiting squad car. Ray stares around in confusion and disbelief. Surely the police know he's one of them. He was at the scene under NYPD and FBI instructions. They can't possibly suspect him of pulling the trigger. But the situation gets even more bizarre. The two men sitting next to Ray are the same strangers who drove him to the Audubon earlier today. In silence, they escort him to a police station in the city center and throw him into a cell, where he's left alone for hours. It's easy to understand Ray's fear and confusion. Each time he hears the hopeful footsteps of a guard or officer he begs them to tell him what's going on. Why is he in here? What are they charging him with? But his questions are repeatedly met with silence. Eventually, after three long, desperate hours, a police officer enters Ray's cell and wordlessly unlocks his handcuffs. Ray bombards him with the same questions he's been asking all afternoon, dying to find out what on earth is happening. This time, the officer gives him a reply, but it's as far from an explanation as anyone could ever imagine. According to Ray, the officer tells him that he needs to stop worrying about what he's witnessed. He's done his job well and his bosses are happy. Then, just as Ray's turning to leave, the officer whispers a chilling threat Do not speak of this again, or you will face similar consequences. As Ray hurries back home through the darkening streets, his head is likely bursting with questions. Why did his bosses at the NYPD send him to the Audubon today of all days? Did they somehow know that Malcolm X was going to be assassinated and want to give Ray a front row seat? And what did the officer mean by saying Ray had done his job well? It's while remembering these particular words that it all suddenly clicks into place. Ray's mind flashes back to an incident he was involved in just five days ago. After months of working undercover, spilling the secrets of activist groups to his bosses at the NYPD, Ray finally completed his task. He tricked two radicals into plotting an act of terror and watched as the police swiftly arrested them. These two men should have been standing by Malcolm X's side this afternoon, ready to defend him against any dangerous attacks. They should have saved his life. Instead, they were locked behind bars, helpless to defend their leader. But what does Ray Wood make of all this? Does he see himself as complicit in Malcolm X's murder? Or can he justify his actions as simply part of a job? It's not entirely clear why Ray was arrested by the NYPD, although it's probable that the arrest was staged. The NYPD perhaps wanted to protect Ray's identity as an undercover agent, so removed him from the scene as quickly as possible. After all, if anyone discovered that a detective working for Boss, a top-secret police squad designed to infiltrate Black political groups, was present at the murder, there would be a lot of uncomfortable questions to answer. Questions which the FBI would go to extreme lengths to avoid. In the days following Malcolm X's death, the police talk to hundreds of witnesses and record hours of testimony. Witnesses claim to have seen who fired the shots. Some were recognized as members of the Nation of Islam, although spectators can't be certain of their identities. Police agree with this assumption. It's likely that the shooters did come from the Muslim Brotherhood. You see, the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X spent the last few months caught up in a bitter, deadly feud with many members promising to kill the civil rights leader. Just one week ago, Nation of Islam activists firebombed Malcolm X's house in their latest act of hatred. But aside from the likelihood that the shooters came from the Muslim Brotherhood, police can find no more leads. Their investigation begins to lose momentum. However, a few days after speaking with witnesses, the names of two new suspects suddenly pop up, seemingly out of nowhere. 26-year-old Norman Butler and 30-year-old Thomas Johnson. The pair are known as violent activists for the Nation of Islam, and some sources speculate that at least one of them was involved in the recent bombing of Malcolm X's house. Aside from these factors, however, it's not clear what evidence there is against them, and many don't believe their guilt for a second. But the NYPD is under mounting scrutiny to bring Malcolm X's killers to justice. And so they arrest Norman Butler and Thomas Johnson. Interestingly, not one of the police reports mentions the strange lack of security presence the day that Malcolm X was killed. The reports also fail to disclose that undercover officers, such as Ray Wood, were at the crime scene when the assassins struck. Do the NYPD have something to hide? Or are Butler, Johnson, and Talmadge Hayer the only guilty men? Hey, it's Carter from Cold Cases, here to tell you about a very special crossover I'm doing with Sarah Turney and the fantastic series Disappearances. In 1959, nine hikers mysteriously died in Russia's Ural Mountains. Over 60 years later, we're still left wondering what exactly happened on Dyatlov Pass. Sarah and I are teaming up to take a closer look. If you're a ParCast listener or a true crime fan, this episode is for you. Follow Cold Cases and check out our deep dive into the Dyatlov Pass incident today. Listen for free only on Spotify. We took it all. The trial for Malcolm X's alleged killers takes place in March 1966, just over one year since his brutal slaying in broad daylight. Talmadge Heyer, Norman Butler, and Thomas Johnson are all facing charges for first-degree murder. Each of them pleads innocent, at least to begin with. Unfortunately for Hayer, the case against him is ironclad, prosecutors explain to the jury how he was found at the scene of the crime with a gun in his hands, one which matches the bullets in Malcolm X's body. What's more, Heyer is a devoted member of the Nation of Islam. The evidence stacked against him is damning. Next, prosecutors move on to Butler and Johnson. They claim that, due to their involvement in the Nation of Islam, the two men are close friends with Talmadge Heyer, they believe that they conspired with him to murder Malcolm X. This is a clever tactic to prove their guilt. In alleging that Butler and Johnson were co-conspirators with Heyer, everything used against Heyer could also be used against them. Essentially, Heyer's guilt can incriminate Butler and Johnson. However, although the prosecution is strong, the defense should be able to counter it. You see, unlike Heyer, Butler and Johnson weren't seen anywhere near the Audubon that day, and there's no physical evidence linking them to the murder scene. What's more, several friends have provided credible alibis to the police, which could prove their innocence. But in an unusual and questionable turn of events, the NYPD and FBI choose not to release these key pieces of evidence. The court never hears the men's various alibis, never learns that they weren't near the ballroom, and is unable to make a case for their innocence. Some people speculate a sinister reason for this obstruction. Perhaps, they think, the NYPD wants Butler and Johnson to be charged with murder. After all, it would be easier for them if these three men were found guilty and the case was immediately closed. There is one person, though, who puts up a noble fight to defend the two men. Talmadge Hayer. In a surprising turn of events, Hayer takes the stand for the second time during the trial. In front of a packed courtroom, he openly confesses to shooting Malcolm X. As if this sudden revelation isn't enough of a spectacle, Hayer has more to say. He vehemently exclaims that Butler and Johnson are innocent. I just want to testify that Butler and Johnson had nothing to do with it. I was there, I know what happened, and I know the people who were there." An excited murmur rumbles through the courtroom. Spectators turn to each other in disbelief, hardly daring to believe what they've just heard. Like magnets, their eyes dart between Hare on the stand and the two men he swears are innocent. Everyone wonders the same thing. Will the words of a self-proclaimed killer be believed? Or will the jury simply discard it as a last-minute attempt to protect his fellow conspirators? On March 11, 1966, Talmadge Hayer, Norman Butler, and Thomas Johnson are all found guilty of the murder of Malcolm X. They're each sentenced to 20 years to life behind bars. For Butler and Johnson, who insist they're innocent, this merciless sentencing is nothing short of a tragedy. Their young lives have been ruined. Both are torn away from their families, their steady jobs, and any dreams they've dared to make. The two men will have to endure some of America's harshest high-security prisons as the world brands them as killers and life moves on. But the story of who killed Malcolm X doesn't end with the sentencing of Hayer, Butler, and Johnson. Over five decades later, an unexpected deathbed confession will arise, which opens up the infamous controversy once again. In the years following the trial for Malcolm X's murder, life becomes a struggle for Ray Wood. He spends just another five years working for the NYPD, reaching the prestigious rank of sergeant before quitting in 1971. It seems that by the time he resigns, Ray has become completely disillusioned with the force. Is he consumed by guilt for the awful things he was made to do? Guilt for the part he played in Malcolm X's death? Sadly, it seems like Ray is haunted by the ghosts of his past. Fading into the background... He forgets the popular, personable, vibrant man of his youth, the one who flew planes for his country, protested on picket lines with CORE, and broke hearts around New York. Instead, he becomes a shadow of that man. He leaves the city, stops talking to friends and family. He withdraws from the world altogether, eventually retreating into total isolation. Ray's self-imposed exile continues for almost four decades, that is, until tragedy strikes in 2010. Aged 77, Ray is diagnosed with colon cancer. Perhaps fearing he doesn't have long left to live and craving company in his final years, Ray reaches out to his estranged family and attempts to rekindle old relations he's put in touch with a younger, distant cousin, Reggie Wood, who lives with his wife and children in Tampa Bay, Florida. Reggie is eager to meet Ray, having heard stories about him growing up and even read about his involvement in the famous Statue of Liberty plot. So, being an obliging family man, Reggie organizes for Ray to move to Florida, into a house not far from his own. Here, he'll be able to help care for his elderly relative while also getting to know him better. Once there... The two men spend endless days with each other, learning about their different lives, revisiting family history, and enjoying the limited time they have left together. Ray even tells Reggie stories about his time in the NYPD, but he never reveals the full extent of his work. For now, he keeps his involvement in Malcolm X's death a shameful secret. It's January, 2011. Recently, Ray Wood has received two devastating pieces of news. First, his cancer has progressed. Doctors estimate he has just weeks left to live. And second, Thomas Johnson, one of the men convicted of killing Malcolm X, has died. He never managed to clear his name. This second piece of information fills Ray with guilt. You see, he has evidence which could prove Johnson's innocence. If he'd come clean years ago, then Johnson might have died a free man. Spurred on by regret, as well as knowledge that his own time on Earth is running out, Ray Wood decides to take action. First, he confesses to Reggie. He spills everything about his time in the NYPD, from the Statue of Liberty plot, which resulted in the arrests of Collier, Syed, and Bo to the assassination of Malcolm X and his own suspicious involvement. Then he writes his story down in a letter. This is perhaps to give Reggie proof of the confession and show the world his story. I, Raymond A. Wood, being of sound mind and body, wish to confess the following. He gives a few details about himself, his work, and the remorse he now feels. Then he writes, Recently, I have learned of the death of Mr. Thomas Johnson and am deeply concerned that with my death, his family will not be able to exonerate him after being wrongly convicted in the killing of Malcolm X. Thomas Johnson was wrongfully convicted to protect my cover and the secrets of the FBI and NYPD. Ray waits a few minutes while Reggie quickly types up the contents of the letter. Then, after scribbling his signature at the bottom... Ray seals it. But miraculously, Ray's health improves. The guilt that moved him to write the confession is overpowered by the fear of making his secret public. He's terrified of the consequences that await him. Will he be sent to jail, branded a killer, perhaps disowned by his family? And so the letter, which contains information powerful enough to change America's history and exonerate two men, is slipped into a drawer it'll stay there, locked away for nine long years. It's November, 2020. America is rocked by a wave of protest, disturbing echoes of the unrest that shook the 1960s. Once again, racial inequality, civil rights abuses, and police killings are making headline news. It's against this backdrop of radical change that Reggie chooses to finally share Ray Wood's deathbed confession. Ray passed away just weeks ago, so Reggie is no longer bound by the promise he made not to share his secret. The secret about how the state allegedly conspired to kill Malcolm X. Reggie Wood contacts a reputable civil rights attorney called Benjamin Crump, who's deeply interested in Reggie's story. He's excited to hear that Norman Butler, one of the men charged with Malcolm X's murder, might, at long last, have a shot at redemption. Providing, of course, that the letter is genuine. According to Reggie, the two men set about researching every single claim made in the letter. They need to ensure that Ray's words are 100% truthful. After all, accusing the FBI and NYPD of conspiring to murder a national hero is no small thing. Reggie compiles all of his information together in a book, which he releases during one of the 21st century's most poignant moments for black America. The 55th anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination and the eve of Derek Chauvin's trial for the killing of George Floyd. And so, in front of rolling cameras, news reporters, journalists, and even members of Malcolm X's family, Reggie prepares to read out the contents of his cousin's letter. He knows that it's his responsibility to share Ray's secret, a secret which sent his cousin into isolation and haunted him for over five decades. It's now up to him to do what Ray was always afraid of. Tell the world what really happened when Malcolm X was killed. The shocking story of Ray Wood's deathbed confession captures national headlines immediately. At once, the press explodes into a wild frenzy. The ghosts of Malcolm X and Ray Wood are reincarnated as America tries to understand their alleged connection to one another a blinding spotlight is shown onto Reggie Wood. He becomes a celebrity almost overnight, speaking on talk shows, morning television, and political channels. His story is all anyone wants to hear. But not everyone is pleased by Reggie's words. His critics begin to cast doubt on his credibility, as well as the authenticity of Ray Wood's confession. First, Ray Wood's daughter doesn't believe that the letter is genuine. She insists that her father was a brave, heroic man one who'd never harbor a secret of this size. She doesn't buy Reggie's story for a second. As it turns out, she isn't the only one with these suspicions. Many speculate that Reggie wrote the letter himself in order to get rich quick. A brief background check of Reggie reveals repeated business failures, unpaid loans, missed bills, and even two criminal convictions. His critics believe there's plenty of reason to doubt his story. One thing, however remains an undisputable fact. Just five days after Ray Wood conspired to have Malcolm X's security guards arrested, the celebrated civil rights leader was shot to death. It's November 18th, 2021. Over a year has passed since Reggie Wood shared his cousin's secret. Interest in the Malcolm X assassination conspiracy has continued to grow. It's even reached the highest court in America. Today, outside of the New York Supreme Court, a sense of excitement fills the air. The sidewalks are teeming with anxious journalists and reporters. They snap shots of everyone who enters the building and interview anyone they can find. Inside, hundreds of spectators sit in a hushed silence. They cast nervous looks around the room, from the defense team huddled at the front to the judge who has a monumental decision to make. From within this very courtroom, a verdict will be reached about one of the most controversial trials in US history, the 1966 sentencing of Norman Butler and Thomas Johnson for the murder of Malcolm X. For the past 22 months, the Manhattan District Attorney and the Innocence Project have worked tirelessly in a mammoth effort to clear the two men's names. The murder charges against them have always been heavily disputed by historians, witnesses, the press, and even lawyers. But perhaps due to the global reputation and controversy of the case, nothing has ever amounted to a legal challenge. Until now. Today, 55 years since Butler and Johnson were convicted on flimsy evidence, new information has made it possible to challenge their charges. From the front of the courtroom, Norman Butler's defense team makes their case. They read out extracts from their 43-page report. They reveal that the FBI and NYPD withheld key evidence during the 1966 murder trial. Evidence which could have proven Butler and Johnson's innocence. First, the authorities failed to release credible affidavits which placed Butler and Johnson away from the scene of the crime. Second, they hid their own list of suspects which pointed to other likely individuals as the shooters. And lastly, most shocking of all, is the revelation that, despite the lack of police presence that day, the NYPD and FBI apparently had undercover officers in the crowd, men like Ray Wood. The groundbreaking report concludes that, had these damning pieces of evidence been presented to the jury at trial, it's unlikely that Butler and Johnson would have ever been found guilty. Now it's up to presiding Judge Ellen Bibin. With one of the defendants having died before seeing justice and the huge resurgence in civil unrest, it would be impossible to overstate the importance of her verdict. Her decision has the power to change history. A deafening hush fills the courtroom as Judge Bibin rises to speak directly addressing Norman Butler and the family of Thomas Johnson, she announces their official exoneration. I regret that this court cannot fully undo the serious miscarriages of justice in this case and give you back the many years that were lost. To a standing ovation and a courtroom full of applause, Bibin rules that Butler and Johnson were wrongfully convicted of the murder of Malcolm X. Finally, 56 years after he was sentenced to life in prison, 83-year-old Norman Butler is a free man. As he leaves court, he shakes the hands of every one of his lawyers, thanking them profusely for their undying belief in his innocence. For the first time since his conviction, his future belongs to him, and he's determined to make every second he has left count. As for the family of Thomas Johnson, relief and tears flood their faces. They're torn between elation and heartbreak. Grateful that justice has been served, but devastated that Johnson never lived to see this day. They can only pray that this gross injustice will never tear another family apart. However, there are still questions that need to be answered. First. Although the DA's report exonerates both men, it stops short of naming Malcolm X as actual shooters. As far as America knows, the guilty men are still out there somewhere, having never paid for the life they took away. Second, the report doesn't accuse the NYPD or FBI of conspiring to assassinate Malcolm X. Their alleged involvement is left open to interpretation. And finally, Although it claims that there were several undercover officers at the Audubon that day, it doesn't explain why they were there. Gene Roberts, Malcolm X's most trusted bodyguard, and the man famously photographed desperately giving him mouth to mouth, later claimed to have been an FBI informant. Roberts has since stated that, like Ray Wood, he too was part of Boss and was under orders to keep an eye on Malcolm X not for the leader's personal safety, but for the interest of the FBI. But what were they all doing at the Audubon that day? Did they know what was going to happen? Could they have possibly prevented the murder? Or were they placed there for another reason entirely? While the legendary name of Malcolm X will live on forever, the same is not true for Ray Wood. Reggie's memoir, The Ray Wood Story, fails to make a lasting impression on its readership. Although the Deathbed Confession draws in attention from conspiracists and tabloid journalists at first, it's soon dismissed by renowned academics who question its credibility. And so, instead of rewriting history as Reggie imagined it would, Ray's Deathbed Confession seems doomed to be remembered as yet another wild conspiracy. However, Ray did get one of his final wishes. In his deathbed confession, he prayed that Thomas Johnson would one day be exonerated. Finally, that wish has come true. The real killers of Malcolm X may still be out there, but those who are wrongly convicted will now be remembered on the right side of history. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Emmett Till, a young boy in 1950s Mississippi with a reputation for being a bit of a joker. But his sense of humor and naivety will soon land him in serious trouble. In the South, segregation is still heavily implemented in every state, and many people don't take kindly to Emmett's confidence or his affable nature. One day when he walks into a local store, Emmett makes a choice which will be fatal. His action will deeply offend the shop owner and drive two men to abhorrent lengths in order to teach Emmett and his friends a lesson. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast. Produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor Jane O. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix Master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory Macaulay.